We're in Romans chapter 3 today. Another event that's coming up in the near future, in the next month or so, is we're going to be having our first informational meeting about Brazil, our Brazil mission trip for next summer. And as I was looking through some of that material, beginning to get prepared and talking and getting dates and all of that, I I just reminisced about my first trip to Brazil, which happened in 1998. It's the first time I went to Brazil. It was a couple of months before Susan and I got married. 25 years ago was my first trip. And I didn't know a whole lot about it. I went because my father-in-law, who was the pastor of Inglewood, said, I think it would be good for you to go on this trip. And he didn't say that me marrying his daughter, that this trip was conditional on that. But I kind of got the idea that this was an opportunity to ingratiate myself to my future father-in-law. And so we went. I didn't know a whole lot about it. We worked in an orphanage. and It was awesome. But on the Next to last night, a guy named Gary Taylor, who was leading the the group, said, hey, we're all going to go out to eat tonight. And normally we just eat in there at the resort that we were at, which that resort is a loose term about where we actually were staying, okay? The place we had a bed is where we were eating at as well. And so he said, we're all going to go out to eat tonight. And he said, we're going to go to Chascaria, a Brazilian steakhouse. How many of you have ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse here or somewhere, right? Okay. So Brazilian steakhouse, I didn't really know what that meant. I just thought, cool, I'll get a steak or whatever. And if you go to Brazilian steakhouses in America, they are generally high-priced affairs in some of the, you know, ritzier sections of town, right? And so some of you may have been to Texas de Brazil, or there used to be one downtown before it exploded, a Rodizio. Like, you may have been to those, and we've done staff outings to them, and they're in nice sections. This first year we went, I don't know where we went. I couldn't find it on a map. We were out. The best way I can describe this is, there are those movies that are adventure slash horror movies where people find themselves stranded out in the middle of nowhere at like a pop-up uh, just gas station or something, right? That's where we were. And we drove and I thought, what in the world are we getting into? It was this little family-owned affair. But the thing about a Brazilian steakhouse is when you go, they give you like a little thing that looks almost like an hourglass, but it's made of wood. That may look different at different ones. But on one side of it is red, on the other side is green. And as long as you have it on green, they will bring you meat, all you can eat. And they will bring that meat until you either keel over and pass out, or you turn it to red, right? And I want to tell you, 25 years ago, I was a few pounds lighter, and my metabolism was three times as strong, and I ate that night like I have never eaten in my life. I did not see that surpassed, what I did that night, until I took David Jackson to the Brazilian Steakhouse here in Nashville. And David is the champ back there. No lie, we went with the staff one time, and we still had ours on green. And they came around and started saying, um, "Is there something we can get you that we haven't gotten you already?" And we're like, "Like, well, we've gone from lunch to dinner. We're still here. We're waiting." All right. Here's why I tell you that story. All right. Today, I want you to leave your listening and understanding ears on green, because what we're about to encounter is a smorgasbord 
a buffet of biblical greatness. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 31, is considered by most people that study Romans to be the most important passage in the entire book. Not only that, it's also considered by many people to be the most important part of the Bible. All of it. Martin Luther said about this particular section, Romans 3, 21 through 26, is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle of Romans and of the whole Bible. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Leon Morris, who's a modern commentator, went beyond that and said, Romans 3, 21 through 26, is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Now, I started not to tell you all that because that puts a lot of pressure on me here, right? At the same time, this is the kind of sermon where the Bible preaches itself. It is just straight truth. And here's the reason. is because in one paragraph, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to tell us the need for Jesus, what Jesus did, why Jesus did it, and how we respond. It's the gospel. It is straight gospel fire. And it is needed by not just those who are outside the faith. And let me say to you this right now. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, you could not have come to a more important understanding and a more important sermon than today. Because this passage of Scripture will explain why you need Jesus, what He did about it. But for those of us that are already believers, it's important for us to be reminded of this. Remember, this book is written to believers. It is written to saints in Rome. It is written to people who were already following Jesus. And it's a reminder of how we got here, how thankful we should be, how we treat each other, and what we do in our life for Christ. Romans chapter 3. We're actually going to start in verse 20. Now we're going to look a little past where we are to verse 31. It says this. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God had passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. 
On the contrary, we uphold the law. Three things that we see in this passage that are vital for understanding of Christianity, vital for understanding of what we believe about salvation and Jesus and all of that come in this passage. And the first one is this, that we have not, cannot, and will not meet God's standard. Now, if you weren't here last week, let me give you a previously owned moment about what we talked about last week because we really covered two plus chapters of Romans. Romans, middle part of one, all the way to the middle part of three. Two chapters in the book of Romans. And the point of those two chapters was to show all of us that we are not worthy of entering into the presence of God because of the sin in our lives. We talked about the fact that we have a problem and have no excuses for it. There's nothing that when we get to God, we can say to him, well, I just didn't know, or I wasn't fully aware, or I thought about it, but I never committed. And that what God did is that when we desire things other than him, he gave us over to that, gave us what we wanted, and we walked down a path that led to us to discover that our desires, our wants, our sin is not what brings fulfillment. And we come to that place where we try to fix it through religion, and religion, laws, and rules make it worse. And we finally understand, and Paul says, that all people, Jews, Gentiles, anyone that has ever lived outside of Jesus have sinned and are responsible for their sin before God. And he gets to verse 20 and he sums that up and he says, here's the reality. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. He says that the law, and he's talking here in general in this place, or specifically about the law of Moses that was given, the Ten Commandments and all that we find in the book of Leviticus, that that law that they were trying to follow, what the law actually does is it shows us that we are incapable of fulfilling God's law. That we cannot in any way do what God wants us to do. And the law shows us how fallen we are. Romans 3.23 reminds us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I was sitting Friday at my house. And my phone rang. And the caller ID on my phone said, Jeff Ball. I remember Jeff and Marie, those of you that have been around, used to help lead worship. And, and uh, Marie is now leading worship in Virginia at a church. And their family's doing awesome. God is using them in mighty ways. It's awesome to see. Jeff calls, and I pick up the phone, and Jeff says to me, Pastor, I just have a question for you. What does all mean? Y'all been around a little while, you know that I, around here we know that all means all. I said, well, it means all. He says, good. You just settled a marital dispute for me. I said, that's not what the purpose of that was. Right? And that's not how it's supposed to be used. We end up having a great conversation. But we know that all means all. And when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there are a couple of things that we need to understand about the words in that particular verse that are important for us to understand our condition before God. It says, all have sinned. That is a perfect tense. And what that means is, we all have committed a sin in the past and others that has ongoing effects into the future that we do not see, that something has happened in the past that is carrying forth ramifications until the end of eternity. 
outside of some act of God. And then when it says, and fall short of the glory of God, the literal word there means it's an athletic term. It's an archery term in some ways that it falls short, that you have shot an arrow and it doesn't make the target. It falls short. And that word, it's in the present tense, which means an ongoing, continuing action. And so what you have really there is, he says, for all of us, all of us have had a moment in our lives, moments in our lives when we have sinned before God, and that sin is carrying on impacts until eternity, and we all fall short. We are continually, right now and into the future, falling short of the glory of God. What does glory mean there? It means the weight of God. It means the, the holiness of God. It means the standard, the measuring stick of God. And no matter what we do, we cannot undo what we have done. And so when he says the law reveals this to us, the reason the law reveals this to us, and it's not just, he's talking specifically about the Mosaic law, but this is true almost, well, of every other religion. Every other religion is, here's a set of things that you do, and if you obey, you will be accepted. Christianity says, it doesn't matter how much you obey, because you cannot undo what you've already done. And the standard is not a little bit better. The picture here, think of it, when you think of the fall short, it would be like, can you jump the requirement of God's standard. And in our mind, well, what would that be? Like 10 feet, 15 feet? Like how much further do I have to get to be good? And in God's mind, what that understanding is, the chasm is unimaginable. It would be as if you told a human being to stand on the eastern shore of the United States and jump to Europe. just can't happen. And so he says... For all of us have sin in our lives that is preventing us from a relationship with God. And, and, we are continually falling short. And the law doesn't work because it doesn't change our heart. And we're still guilty no matter what we do. It's important for us to understand that before we even understand the beauty of what God has done for us because until we understand the depth of our sin, no matter who you are or what you've done, and here's the reality, we're all at the same place in that before Jesus. Billy Graham knew this was an important concept I read this week about a crusade he did in 1972 in Birmingham, Alabama. He preached eight sermons Over a week. And somebody went through the transcripts and counted the number of times he quoted Romans 3.23. And in those eight sermons over a week's time, he quoted Romans 3.23 56 times. That's seven times per sermon. Thousands were saved that week because he knew knew that they had to understand their need for Jesus. All fall short. Here's the second point we see in there. God's grace is a gift we do not deserve and cannot earn, but it's real. 
Verse 21 says it this way. But now... There's one commentator that says those two words at this particular place after we've been described as lost without hope because of the law that has condemned us, those two words, but now, are the two sweetest words in the entire Scripture. Apart from the law, separate of the law, not with the law, because the law cannot save. The righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. They told us it was coming. God has revealed it. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus. How do we get it? Where did it come from? From Jesus. And it is for to all who believe, since there is no distinction. And then verse 23, the one we just quoted, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet... Verse 24, praise be to God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint God passed over sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. There are a couple of important words here, biblical words, church words that we need to understand as we kind of grasp what God has done to us. And the first thing there is, then you see, but now, it's a temporal idea. It's like, that's who you were before Jesus saved you, but now Jesus has justified you through his life and sacrifice. Justified there. By the way, this is a verse. These are the verses that led Martin Luther to begin to rethink his entire understanding of justification by faith, of what it means to be saved, and led to the greatest um, revolution in the church since Jesus, the Protestant Reformation. And this idea is justification means that we have been legally declared once and for all Innocence. And that Jesus' righteousness is given, credited to us. And the thing that staggered Luther and staggers me is that I am declared righteous even though I still give in to sin in my life today. I am declared justified by God. In fact, there was a phrase that he used often in Latin that was simu ustus et chigator. That's what I thought. (laughs) That wasn't close to the way it's supposed to be said, but you don't know. There may be a Latin scholar out here, I don't know. But it means simu simultaneously at the same time, justus, just, et, we know like et tu brute and you brutus, et, and, and then peccator means sinner. At the same time, just and a sinner. Righteous because of what God has done even though I'm still in my sin at this moment. This passage shows us how he did it. 
It tells us that the act that he did was redemption. That he redeemed us. It literally means to buy us back. It means that something has bought us and God, we were bought, put enslaved by sin and God went and got us back, bought us back, brought us back. It's a word that we use today for coupons, right? Or um, uh, our family is a, a big supporter of, uh, of Chick-fil-A every Wednesday night. It's Chick-fil-A. And uh, we build points. And we have an app on my phone that every time we buy chicken, they, they give us points. So when we buy 420 sandwiches, we get a free one somewhere. Something like that, right? But every once in a while, on our birthday or just randomly, we'll get something in the app because we have, we have been um, supporters of Chick-fil-A a lot over the last year or year and a half and we're on a certain tier of rewards. Every once in a while we'll just get something free given to us. And what that means is when I go to the store and I show them the code and they scan it, I didn't pay anything for it. The manufacturer, the company, sent me something that said I could have something free. When I got there, they redeemed it. They paid the whole price. I got it for free. Scripture tells us that Jesus bought us back. The most beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament is the story of Hosea. A man who was called by God to marry a prostitute, and then it says that he went and did it, and then later, apparently, she left him. And God said to him, go buy her back. And so he literally went and bought her back. And God used that as a picture to say, this is what I am doing for my people. How? How did he buy us back? Well, the price there, it tells us, it was an atoning sacrifice. Verse 25 says that God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood. There's a lot of discussion about what that word should be interpreted as. Some say atoning sacrifice. Some use the really big church word propitiation. But the idea there is the, the, the actual word gives the image, the picture of the mercy seat, which was at the center of the worship of the Jews in the sacrificial era. The mercy seat is where they would lay the blood and ask God's forgiveness for the people. Also behind this word is the concept of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, where they literally would bring a goat into the assembly and they would use that and slaughter that and use that as a a symbol of asking God's forgiveness and they would let one go. And the picture that they have in there is that they would go into the presence of God and ask for forgiveness of the individual, of the priest, and then of the nation. And they would slaughter an animal for that and his blood would be spilled and placed on the mercy seat. And as a result they were forgiven by God. Here he is saying that the cross of Jesus Christ where his blood was shed for you and me is the mercy seat where the atoning sacrifice of blood was made for your sins and for mine. And there are people out there, there are, there are uh, preachers out there that don't talk about that don't sing about, that don't have understandings of the blood of Jesus a lot because it sounds gruesome and gross and some people don't like it. Here's the reality. I am thankful for the blood of Jesus because it is with that blood that he purchased, redeemed me from my sin. And I sacrifice nothing. And he gave it all. What's our response? 
What tells us here, it is simply saving faith. It's just a trust in the Lord. It says they're justified freely by His grace through the redemption. Verse 26, God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. It tells us the reason for the sacrifice was twofold. One is that God had had, had not... that. that even though he had set up the sacrificial system, that the blood of lambs could not pay for the sins of people completely. That it took a perfect sacrifice. And that his son was that. And so it was redeeming or showing or proving, it's proving God's character and redeeming our sin. And the way that we respond to that is... That we just trust in Him, believe in Him, have faith in Him. The word faith used there means to lean into or to put your weight on. It is literally to trust with everything you have. I heard it put this way this week. Now, I love this analogy. It's similar to the way that relationships move from one status to the next and particularly from interested in each other to engagement to marriage. Like as you meet someone, you, you become interested in them, you think about them, you like them, and then you begin to walk down the path of the more you learn, like there are some things that may not be great, but I believe this person is who uh, God has for me, and you begin to put your trust in that, and then at some point you have to make that commitment. You have to ask that person to be in a long-term marital relationship with you. And then when the marriage ceremony happens, one of the things that I emphasize when they're standing before me and I'm overseeing a ceremony is that today you are forming a brand new family. There are separate things coming together today, making one. That's scriptural. The two became one flesh. And in our society, that's shown in some ways. Like uh, her debts become his debts in most places. Deeds get transferred. Names get attached. So 25 years ago, when I said I do and Susan said I do, she went from being Susan Jett, who she had been all of her life, to Susan Larson, spiritually and legally. And we said that we're putting our full faith in this person and we're committing to them. As you hear about Jesus and what he's done for you, at some point, it requires you saying, I believe in you. And I'm asking you to justify, to save me. You see, Jesus became our sin. Martin Luther said, All the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and said to Him, Jesus, You will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David the adulterer. You will become Adam the sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. In our day, You will become the husband who has neglected or abused his family. You will become the immoral woman who has wrecked someone else's marriage. You will become the drug addict, the racist, the teenage lying girl, the hypocrite, the proud, the selfless, the apathetic, the gossiping church member. Jesus became all of that 
so that you and I could be made right with God. Praise be to God. People ask me why I believe. I believe Scripture. I have seen God work in my life. And when I read Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 31, I want to say I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for the truth of your word that you are a God who redeems us by an atoning sacrifice. And all we have to do is believe it. Place our life in your hands. And I pray, Lord, that we do that here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.